These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. Thankfully, the multipolar era of the last few episodes is pretty well over now, and only Larsa and Babylon will be moving history forward in this period, the few decades around the year 1800 BCE. Today we'll focus on the southern half of the story, the roller coaster ride of Larsa, through a bit of drama and then into a series of conquests and very influential reforms under the big name of the age, Rimsin of Larsa, the longest reigning monarch in Mesopotamian history and definitely among the top ten most influential. However, there is an elephant in the room any time we discuss Rim Sin, the fact that he ruled and conquered at the same time as another man, probably the first name on this podcast that I'm confident every listener has heard before, Hammurabi of Babylon. As great as Rim Sin was, the fact is that in the end he was eclipsed by Hammurabi, and history was forever shaped by Babylon's ascendancy instead of Lars's. This means that Rimsin was destined to be buried beneath the more famous man of his era, and while he was well on the road to becoming one of history's greats, this one stain on his record means that he can never be considered any more than Rimsin the Pretty Good. Still, the tale of Larsa's final decades is compelling enough that I'm going to devote the entire episode to it. We will see Hammurabi appearing in the story, as well as some of the other cities we've seen up to this point, but Hammurabi will be given his own episode, probably quite a few actually, and the other cities won't be given any more episodes since they won't matter anymore. That's what happens when you lose history. But Rimsin is still 20 years away. When we last left Larsa, we were in the dynasty of Nur-Adad, who has had three sons all with confusingly similar names. We saw Nur-Adad's peaceful reign come to an end with the ascension of ambitious Sin-Idinam, who ended the peaceful times with a series of ambitious strikes against all the northern powers of the age in order to protect his city's endless canal-building projects. Sin-Idinam would only live for five years, though, before dying and passing the throne on to his son, who would in turn live for only two unproductive years before himself dying, which is where we left the city in the last episode. Sin-Idinam had no more eligible sons, so the throne passed on to one of his brothers, Sin-Ikisham. Now, the events that happen next are known only from scattered mentions, and so there are a few possible interpretations of what happens next. Honestly, this is not a well-studied period, and so the following story could well change in the future as more archaeological evidence is uncovered or as more texts get translated. However, I think it is a pretty plausible outline of events given what we know. In Sin Ikisham's second year, he has two different year names. This isn't unheard of. Sometimes events midway through the year would prove to be more significant than the initial naming. Or sometimes the scribes just don't happen to all be on quite the same page as to what the year is called. In the beginning of the year, he sends a pair of magnificent statues to the city of Kazalu, along with a grandiose hymn to the patron god Numicta. This was a diplomatic overture to the city, which had been for the last few decades the hapless punching bag of the other powers in the region, and was now flitting in and out of 
outright vassalage with Babylon, having been stripped of its city walls not too long ago in an attempt to finally pacify this city. Sin Ikisham followed up this alliance offer in the same year with the conquest of two minor cities, Pinaratim and Nazarum, whose location is uncertain, but which had been fought over in the previous generations as critical access points for the Larsa Canal Network. This, probably in conjunction with a generally tense diplomatic atmosphere, irritated the neighbors, and immediately Sin Ikisham was forced on the defensive, retreating the next year to reinforce the walls of Larsa. But he was able to continue projecting power in the following year, making grand gifts of patronage to show that the key city of Nippur was under his control. Still, he seems to have inherited a lot of hostility, even as he seems to be growing diplomatically and militarily, following his brother's reckless northern campaigns, and only added to it with all his own glory-seeking and patronizing. Larsa had grown to be the strongest among the cities in the region, and it had gained a terrible reputation at the same time. And so, in the fifth year of Sin Ikisham's reign, the entire world came knocking at the gates of Larsa. Babylon still nursed a grudge from when Sin Idinam had been king, and Isin had no real need to be prompted to join a coalition against their longtime rival. Seeing the way the wind was blowing, Fickle Kazalu also switched their allegiance, repudiating the alliance, and even the armies of the Elamites, concerned about a rising power on their borders, joined in. The armies of the four greatest regional powers, every single neighbor Larsa had, appeared at the walls of Larsa. There was a great battle. Sin Ikisham's records indicate that he was victorious in this battle, even slaying the king of Isin in the fighting, a fellow named King Zambia, son of last episode's benevolent king Enlil Bani. However, this is almost certainly not true in the strategic sense. Perhaps there is a grain of truth in the record, and there was a battle that was won by the forces of Larsa, since the scribes really do seem to have considered putting full-on falsehoods into the written record as a form of high blasphemy. But whatever the case was, the coalition armies dismantle Larsa's empire, sack the city, and stick around for long enough to see a change in king. Sin Ikisham's fate is unknown, but it's almost certain that he either died in the fighting or was captured. He was replaced on the throne by another brother, Siliadad. Now, Siliadad was a puppet installed by the coalition and never held the title King of Larsa, just of Governor of Larsa in his inscriptions. He ruled for approximately nine months and leaves us two year names, one from the end of the first year and the other from the start of the second year. The first year is named the year that Siliadad is king. The second year is named the year Siliadad was not the king. Another inscription informs us that he was removed from kingship, which is a rather polite way of putting it. The coalition of cities that had finally put paid to the rising power of Larsa withdrew their troops once the plundering had ended and a compliant king had been installed on the throne. It's unclear what exactly the peace terms were, but the city itself seems to have been a vassal of the Elamites. The city of Nippur fell into Babylonian hands, Isin and Kazalu may have received minor territorial gains, and all four would have taken treasure and slaves from the sack of the city. This 
would have been the end of any other city. But out in the desert, there's an ambitious man who doesn't see Larsa as a city in ruins. Instead, he sees it as an undefended throne available for taking. Qadr Mabuk is probably fairly old, having led a sizable band of Amorite nomads in service to Elam for most of his life. He had inherited the warband from his father, and both of them adopted Elamite names to show loyalty to their paymasters. It's unclear where in the world he is in the year 1834 BCE, following the sack of the city, but it's probably somewhere in southern Mesopotamia, not too far from all the action. In his tent, the year it all goes down, he proclaims his son to be the king of Larsa, with no real justification ever given, or at least none that survives, and gives him a new Akkadian name. Under the nominal authority of King Warad Sin of Larsa, but under the real command of Kudermabuk the Amorite, a nomadic host sweeps through the city and expels the occupying forces of Elam, removing the poor puppet Sili Adad, probably removing his head at the same time. And then he reaches out to the Babylonians and assists them in bringing retribution on the faithless Kazalu, who seem to have upset their allies again following the group's sacking of Larsa. There are two particularly interesting things here. First is that Kudermabuk himself declines to take the kingship, instead setting up his son, though there is good indication that Kudermabuk himself remained the power behind the throne and active as an Amorite warlord. Perhaps he was simply rather old at this point, or perhaps he preferred to rule in his slightly northern city of Mashkan Shapir, which would continue to be closely allied but nominally independent until it was finally absorbed into the growing Larsa kingdom at Kudermabuk's death. As it happens, he will end up living for the entire reign of his older son, Warad Sin, and so, though our official story tells us that Warad Sin does many things, it would appear that half the credit goes to his behind-the-scenes co-regent, Kudermabuk. Also of note is that Warad Sin is crowned the year before he actually conquers Larsa probably only a few months before the final expulsion of coalition troops from the city, since it's likely that the campaign began at the end of the year and finished at the beginning of the second year. But still, it's fairly rare for a Mesopotamian king to be seen claiming a title before he had it secured. It all worked out in the end for him, however, and Warad Sin takes the throne. He and his successor, both, will spend quite a lot of effort glorifying the last few kings of Larsa from the previous dynasty, likely trying to prove to the world that they were proper Larsan patriots rather than foreign conquerors. Indeed, they would not just take Akkadian names rather than the Elamite or Amorite names their lineage would suggest, but they would also focus heavily on their patronage of the city of Larsa in propaganda and hymns, and be so successful at blending in that for a long time historians were confused as to whether or not they really were Amorite, Elamite, or Akkadians of Larsa. Once on the throne, Warad Sin's chief concern is making the citizens of Larsa forget about the nightmare of their sacking and puppet king, exercising as much administrative continuity as was possible, and in the economic records of the time we see that by his fourth year, there are receipts of almost identical style and content as in the years of Sin Ikisham, suggesting that the economy had returned to normal conditions by then. 
generations of fairly inept kings, the legacy of overextension and obsession over the canal projects, and of course the sack of the city, meant that there was quite a lot of rebuilding that needed to be sponsored, and Warad Sin dutifully ordered it all done. On the diplomatic front, things are fairly quiet. Issen, having lost a king in yet another war with Larsa, spirals into terminal decline, which no subsequent king of the city is able to arrest. Babylon is apparently pacified with the assistance Warad Sin and his father render in putting down the city of Kazalu, who seriously seems to have changed allegiance at least three and possibly as many as five times in that decade alone. Elam, too, goes quiet for a time, but their records are so poor that it's impossible to say what motivated either their push into Larsa or their subsequent silence. And in the economic revitalization of Larsa, surrounding by declining or quiet rivals, a number of smaller cities are brought back into Larsan hegemony without a great deal of fuss, many rejoining without blood being spilled. By the time Warad Sin dies, after 12 years on the throne, the Larsa which had once been on the brink of destruction had been restored to a major regional power, ruling the whole of southern Sumer except for the still independent and still quietly peaceful city of Uruk, as well as a long strip up the central Euphrates to the city of Nippur, and north of that even to the otherwise obscure city of his father, Mashkan Shapir, right at the southern border of Babylon. This is the empire inherited by Warad Sin's younger brother, Rimsin. Rimsin had been a young child when his older brother had taken the throne, and was still fairly youthful, though formally an adult by the time of his ascension. In the beginning, his rule looks no different from his brother's, focused on economic activity and temple patronage under the quiet guidance of his increasingly old father. But in Rimsin's fifth year, his father passes away, an event which the young king marks with a lavish funerary offering and two large copper statues commissioned for his father's tomb. The year following this, he commissions a similar statue made in gold to Sin Idanam, the hapless king of Larsa from the end of the previous dynasty. And with those who had gone before properly honored, Rimsin came into his own as a king and a man, and began an unprecedented 60-year-long reign that will see Larsa reach its absolute peak. Soon enough, Rimsin is preparing for something. He may well have had reason to fear an attack, or he could have been making moves to begin a campaign of invasion. The specifics are uncertain, but the political winds had shifted towards hostility and instability. This is the same period of time that new kings come to power in both Issen and Babylon, neither of whom are super important of themselves, but both seem convinced that Larsa is becoming a problem for the region. Rimsin continues his economic activities, but around his tenth year, he begins to fortify cities at the north end of his little kingdom, including his father's former fief of Mashkan Shapir, as well as other cities whose locations are uncertain. At the same time, the city of Nippur falls out of Larsa's hands into Issa's control. I should remind everyone here that though Nippur changes hands often, it's unclear exactly how it happens. Nippur was a holy city, smack in the middle of the Sumerian world, physically and metaphysically. 
Violence was not permitted in the city walls, and even regular violent crimes appear to have, at least in certain periods of history, have been punished extra hard for also being blasphemies. In previous eras, control over Nippur was a result of general conquest in the rest of the region. But here, in an age without a clear winner, at least a clear winner yet, the shifting of control over Nippur is a bit more mysterious. Some have suggested that there was an approved battleground outside the city, where, by consensus, whoever won would be given ritual victory over the city, while others think it may have been a purely diplomatic affair. All we can say for sure is that Nippur pretty much only ever got sacked by barbarians, and that every other culture in the region, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Amorite, appear to have respected the city's sanctity. It is Erdenene, the otherwise obscure king of Uruk, who ends the Decade of Tension. Threatened by Lars's slow expansion, Uruk realizes that it is the last independent power in southern Sumer. Fortunately, they continue to have very close ties with the now firmly established Babylonians, and it surely isn't too difficult to convince the old rival Isan to join into a new anti-Larsa coalition. Additionally, they're able, with promises of wealth, to attract the North Akkadian city of Rapicum and an Amorite nomad tribe called the Sitaeans to the cause. In Rimsin's 13th or 14th year, they descend upon the city, hoping to repeat the success that had exterminated Nur-Adad's dynasty and reduce Larsa for good this time. This army was defeated soundly by Rimsin and the men of Larsa, shattering the coalition and taking a number of smaller cities that had been on the outskirts of Uruk as spoils. Rimsin does not go all the way to Uruk in his victory, however. He is a man of patience and diplomacy, and his military successes seem to come from planned and measured steps. He negotiates with Uruk to release all slaves that had been born in the city of Nippur back to Nippur, an attempt to ingratiate himself with the spiritual capital. Babylon would remain allied with Uruk and hostile to Larsa, but the rest of the coalition fell apart with the defeat, and in short order, Babylon would be attacking both Isan and Rapicum. Rimsin knew that after this victory, he would need to grow his city as fast as possible, since though he had won that battle, it would be easy for his city to be overwhelmed by the resources and manpower of a united Mesopotamia. And so quickly he moved on the city of Pinaratim, a crucial strategic location for the canal network, and continued the Larsen tradition of expanding their access to water through seven years of canal digging. They were attacked frequently during this by smaller raiding groups, and even took a defeat against Babylon in a fairly large pitched battle. But the kingdom as a whole seemed to have done fairly well through these projects. In his 19th year, Rimsin finally feels prepared enough to go back on the offensive and moves in to take Uruk. But still, he doesn't just charge towards his target. He makes steady progress year to year in order that he can take the city cleanly and without too much military risk. In the 19th year, he takes Durham and Kasura, which were both nearby cities tied in some way to Uruk, possibly as loose vassals, and with this he has effectively surrounded Uruk on three sides. In the next year, he moved to the city itself and defeated it and some unnamed allies without too much trouble. 
Unusually for the era, he conquered the city, but makes particular note that he spared the people, which likely means that he limited slavery and plunder once the fighting had ended. A gesture of respect for the prestigious and ancient city, and also likely a pragmatic move to grow the strength of his kingdom. But additionally, this will come to be one of Rimsen's hallmarks in Conquest, that he particularly notes that he spared the people of the city. In this, we again see Rimsen as a measured and intelligent ruler, not the usual strong and charismatic genius that we're used to in Mesopotamian conquerors. However, the capture of Uruk does mean the death of the ruling dynasty, who are all related by a few decades of marriage with the Amorite rulers of Babylon, and right away Rimsin is forced to consolidate and manage the tensions of the angered northerners. Or perhaps he would have turned inward towards strengthening and shepherding his kingdom anyway. Rimsin was never much for the sort of rapid-fire chaotic campaigns that had grown popular among other kings. He didn't want to lift a single spear until he could be certain that it would bring him a victory. Reinforcing this idea, he eschews the epithet Mighty Man that many other rulers have been claiming lately in favor of calling himself Rim Sin the Wise in his documents. The conquest of Uruk and many of the cities much nearer Nippur seems to have flipped the city of Nippur back to Larsa around this time. A city named Karkar, apparently surprisingly close to Larsa, is captured in a Babylonian raid in retaliation, either for Uruk or Nippur, or both. But though it puts Babylonian troops worryingly close to the capital, Babylon is for whatever reason unable to capitalize on this just yet. Meanwhile, Rimsin himself is in the north of his empire, the center of the region of Sumer, slowly growing his borders, reinforcing the walls in minor towns he conquers, and expanding the canal system for agricultural growth and logistical support in the newly conquered territories. He continues this pattern for another eight years, defending his territory against continued Babylonian pressure, even taking a fairly significant loss in battle, though because he's growing his territory in a sustainable and measured manner, this defeat doesn't lead to major losses to the kingdom. This same pressure from the north strikes the city of Isim, and in the year 1797, Isim takes a major defeat and is sacked. This gives Rimsin the opening he's been waiting for, and aggressively moves up the Euphrates. But of course, Rimsin doesn't go straight for the kill, even though he desperately wants it. Instead, he first marches through the town of Dunham, telling us he's following the same route Gungunum had taken during his aborted attempt to capture Isin over a hundred years previously. This time, however, Isin is in deep decline and coming off of a sack, while Larsa is at the height of its power. The next year, Rimsin moves in and conquers the hated enemy. And, in a coincidental stroke of luck, the king of Babylon dies and the throne is passed to his son, who seems to be too concerned with the internal matters of taking the throne to respond to this final shift in the balance of power just now. This new son, of course, is Hammurabi, but his story will come later. For now, we're focused on Rim Sin, who has achieved his life's desire with the conquest of Isin. 
the celebrations must have been massive, for this was far more a psychological victory than a practical one, and Rim Sin does something unprecedented since the start of the Akkadian calendar system. As was mentioned many episodes ago, the Akkadians don't count years sequentially like we do today. Every year had a name that would be determined by the king based on the most significant event to occur in that year, or possibly in the previous year. So in the past, we have years like the year this city was conquered, or the year that temple was built, which are invaluable resources for a historian trying to reconstruct what happened in these times, and even helps show us who was in power in many of the minor cities, since only the major kings would have been considered worthy of setting year names. So when Nippur, for example, switches from using year names of the king of Isan to the king of Larsa, we know that Nippur has changed hands. Anyway, Rimsin's year names are already a bit exceptional for being unusually long and elaborate. He may have considered himself a poet. But in this, his 30th year, he has the year name Rimsin, the true shepherd with the strong weapons of An, Enlil, and Ea, seized Isan, the royal capital, and the various villages, but spared the life of its inhabitants and made great forever the fame of his kingship. Quite the mouthful, especially if you're just trying to put the date at the top of your receipt. But then, the year after that is simply the year after the year Rimsin seized Isan. Now, this isn't exceptional, frequently kings have a year in which nothing too unusual is happening, or they want to drag out the celebration of the previous year's event. But the next year is the same, as is the next. In fact, for the entire rest of his reign, Rim Sin names every single year after his defeat of Isim. The reasons why he does this are debated. Possibly, having already reigned a remarkable 31 years, he figured he didn't have too many year names left, and so he would just devote them all to this one great conquest that he considered to be the peak of his life. Of course, it would turn out that he has another 30 years left in him, but of course he couldn't have known that at the time. Some older historians have suggested that with the defeat of Isan, he becomes profoundly content and accomplishes nothing for the rest of his days. But what seems most likely is that this was simply a huge deal for the people of Larsa, who had struggled against the might of Isan for over a hundred years now. It would prove to be the apogee of Larsan power in all of history, but of course they couldn't have known that in the moment. Whatever the case, Rimsin and the entire kingdom of Larsa appear to spend the whole year partying, as well as making offerings to the many temples, including a large surge of offerings to the city of Nippur. With this, the land of Sumer and Akkad is split in half, with Rimsin of Larsa ruling the southern half, and Hammurabi, the new king of Babylon, rules the northern half. And with this, our focus naturally broadens to the wider world, where there are Eight powers now vying for domination over the whole of the Fertile Crescent. Ouch, we have finally simplified the region of Sumer and Akkad after a period of multipolar chaos, only to find ourselves in another, wider world of multipolar chaos. Larsa, Babylon, 
Katna, Yamhad, Eshnuna, Assyria, Elam, and Mari are all relatively equal powers, more or less, at this very moment in history, and the diplomatic wrangling and military balance between them will be the subject of later episodes. For now, it's enough to know that Rimsin is not facing Hammurabi alone, and indeed would sometimes be on his side for the next 30 years, though in the end we see Lars's kingdom being slowly worn down by Babylonian pressure. But those 30 years do not see Rimsin caught up completely in the struggle against Babylon, and they certainly don't see him growing complacent. He continues to attempt to grow and bring prosperity to his kingdom, but since he can no longer grow it in extent, with a tough enemy on his border, he decides to grow it intensively, with a huge campaign of reforms that will span the entire second half of his reign. The first and most easily seen of his reforms is an attempted reform of the calendar system, including numbering years from the fall of Isin rather than naming each year, as well as some confusing changes to the months, neither of which really caught on. More enduring was the adoption of a broad centralizing land management system called the Ilkum system, which will be so successful that it will come to be adopted, like many of Rimsin's reforms, by Hammurabi, and was indeed credited to the more famous king for a long time before Rimsin's later reign was better understood. In these times, much like in earlier times, there are three general classes of landholders. There are private landholders, which run from peasant smallholders to larger private estates. There are temple lands, which are often extensive and used either directly to feed and provide offerings for the temple, or indirectly to sell and use the profits for the benefits of the temple and high priests and the king's estates, which originally provided for the palace in much the same way that the temple lands provided for the temple, though over time this would grow and become a portion of the state's income in the largest kingdoms. The private citizens would be liable for an annual tax, as would in some places the temples, though possibly sometimes the temples were exempt. The king's lands would be managed as one large estate. However, under the Ilkum system, much more land was brought under state control. Presumably, this land was taken from conquered cities being held by the king directly rather than distributed to a class of nobles like how Sargon managed his conquests. Individuals would then be leased these plots of royal land in exchange not necessarily for a portion of the crops, as was the case under most land lease agreements of the day, but for any of a wide variety of services, like scribal service, crafts, or military obligations. This bound a large set of the middle and upper class much more directly to the central government, since the land that directly fed them was a particular plot of royal land, which they could not sell or exchange, and could be lost if they failed to continue providing the particular service to the state that saw them granted that land in the first place. The Ilkum system is a much tighter net of interdependency than the quasi-feudal system that preceded it. Centralization extends beyond land reform as well, however. In the past, the king delegated many of his governing responsibilities to each subject city, and both taxes and payments for government affairs would be handled by the temples. 
The temples, in turn, would hire entrepreneurs to undertake the purchasing, hiring, and taxing that they needed done, freeing the temple of the bother of managing day-to-day -day activities while allowing the middleman to engage in a bit of extra trade for his own profit. This was essentially the position Ishbi-era had been given under the kings of the Ur dynasty before his rebellion and that dynasty's collapse. But in the 36th year of Rimsin's reign, the records of these entrepreneurs suddenly cease almost completely, with an edict ending the practice of storing taxes locally. From now on, all taxes were to flow into the capital at Larsa directly, and any disbursements would come out from there. The people doing the collecting and dispersing were to be government scribes, not entrepreneurial middlemen. This was, of course, devastating to the entrepreneurs of the subject cities, though the individuals in the same positions in the capital at Larsa suddenly become fantastically wealthy in a very short time, with some of the largest non-royal houses of the Middle Bronze Age appearing in Larsa in this very short 20-year period. Concurrently with this, Government records appear to explode in the second half of Rimsin's reign, as more and more of the economy was nationalized, and businessmen were replaced by bureaucrats. It's tempting for some to call this a form of proto-communism, but just like with Naram Sin's reign back in the Akkadian Empire, this push for centralization is never conceived of in the same terms as modern political theories. Rather, Rimsin is pushing hard for an efficient and wealthy government with the chief aim of beating Babylon in a long-term war in which economy and military were equally important. Additionally, in the interests of economic justice, it would seem, Rimsin annulled all debts three or four times during his reign, a practice called Andurarum, which had been known in other times and other cities, but had never previously been performed in Larsa. Was this another attempt at efficiency? Was it an attempt for the royal household to default on some debts? Or was it simply a populist move to make the general populace appreciate the king more, especially in conquered cities where the threat of rebellion would have put the cities already threatened by Babylon in greater risk? It can't be known, though for sure debt forgiveness has always been a popular way for tyrants to buy the favor of a dependent populace from out of other people's pockets. The final change is Rimsin's end of the practice of putting family members in the position of high priestess. His father, Qatar Mabuk, had put his sister in one of these positions when both had been much younger. But sometime after 1802, this priestess passes away, and Rimsin declines to fill the vacancy from the royal bloodline. After all, with all this centralization he's undertaking, he hardly needs the temples to act as royal intermediaries anymore. Why, you may ask. Are we so focused on the reforms of a city which only has another 20 years before being subsumed by the coming Babylonian Empire? It's because, more than anything he did militarily, the main legacy that Rimsin would leave behind were these very reforms. Larsa, in its final glorious years, is the most centralized state that has ever been seen in Mesopotamia, and possibly in the world up to this point. And this centralization will live on in various forms in the later states of the region. The final defeat of Larsa 
will be better told among the conquests of Hammurabi, which will be an extensive and glorious tale. Not only will Hammurabi's achievements, both militarily and domestically, surpass anyone we've seen before, and not only will his empire be more prosperous and advanced than any other, but also we will have more documents and sources for this period than any other time in history. All this together means that we will be staying in Hammurabi's Babylon for a good long time, looking at literature, economics, military, daily life, and of course, the man himself, in tremendous detail. I am excited for the story of Hammurabi, and I think a good number of you are as well. But for all this teasing, next week will not feature the story of Hammurabi. You see, the Mesopotamian world has grown significantly since the Amorite invasion, something I tried to convey with the episode Lay of the Land a number of weeks ago. And to understand all the players in Hammurabi's story, we need to look at not only Babylon's emergence from the chaos of the south, but also the players and attempts at empire in the northern reaches of the Tigris and Euphrates. So next week, we will go back in time 200 years and start again from the fall of the Ur dynasty, but this time in the upper Euphrates regions of Syria and Assyria. There is a lot of drama to go, but less of this story has survived compared to the south, and so we will be back at Hammurabi in less time than this series of southern episodes took. So join me next time as we watch the northern region of Assyria begin to take shape as we begin our series on Upper Mesopotamia before Babylon. Thank you for listening.